Pastor Kuhn, we have a number of questions from our audience. Shall we ask the Lord for wisdom before we answer them? Our Father in heaven, you've promised in James chapter 1, verse 5, wisdom for those who recognize that they do not possess it. So we thank you, Lord, that as we ask believingly, we are receiving in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Jim, the first question. The first is, I am a primary Sabbath school leader, and she asks, how can I get the children to sit up straight and quiet? A few don't even bother to come on time. Well, that is a good question. Now, there are seven secrets of communication. And uh, this fine lady and any others who are seeking to communicate, and we all seek to communicate, should learn these seven secrets of communication. One is Jesus. The second is joy. So in a religious service where we are leading the young people to Jesus, we certainly should have joy. Uh, unfortunately, many individuals, when they they come into the religious area of life, don't think that they should have joy. These young people need to know that in the presence of Jesus there's joy. So Jesus and joy are two of the outstanding secrets of communicating with young people. Uh, three other secrets are faith, hope, and love. That's 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter and the last verse. We should let the young people know that we have faith in them, we have confidence in them, we love them. And this inspires them with hope. Two other of the, of the special secrets of communication are choice and humility, which means we should take a humble attitude toward the children. We shouldn't belittle them, and we shouldn't uh, sort of cramp them. Now, to show how this can be done in this particular problem, uh, perhaps I ought to cite an example. Many years ago, it was my wife and my privilege to be in one of these... Uh, special Sabbath schools where the little people were marching in. There must have been two or three hundred of them. And the lady in charge was a very precious, beautiful Christian. And uh, I had come in by invitation to tell a story to these young people. Well, after the opening song and prayer and so forth, just a little before she was ready to introduce me to these little people, she said, uh, Young people, I would like to explain something to you. She said, I hope that next Sabbath when you come into church, in a Sabbath school, that you'll sit up like little ladies and gentlemen. And I said to myself, that's strikeout number one. Uh, instead of saying, I wish you'd sit up like little ladies and gentlemen, she should have joy and faith and hope all connected with Jesus, you see. So she could have said something like this. Pastor Kuhn, I am so thrilled. Did you notice that most all of these young people, as they came in this morning, they came in and they sat down like wonderful little ladies and gentlemen? I think that's wonderful, Pastor Kuhn. Don't you and I say, yes, I certainly do. But I, I might say, but uh, do you know what? For the benefit of any, any of the little people who, who found it hard to sit up quietly, Maybe I ought to tell them a story of my own experience. I've always found it hard to sit quietly in any religious service, or at any time for that matter. When I was the size of an age of some of these little people, I used to go to church with my mother and 
Father, and I remember one time in winter, we went to a revival series, and the man that was speaking was so dry that I didn't know anything about what he's talking about, and, and since then I've wondered if Father and Mother even knew, and I've even almost dared to wonder if he knew. At least there was no interest as far as I was concerned, and bless her heart, my mother recognized that, and she knew right then she could either turn me off on religion or she could turn me on. She, I remember, had a fox fur around her neck <laughs> with a little fox heads. And uh, for eyes, she had some, some pins, big-headed pins, you know. And as this man was speaking, I, was, I had to be reverent. I had no right to, be, to whisper, but my mother let me relax and start playing eye, ear, nose, and throat specialist on those little fox first. I would take out their eyes and examine them, put them back in. I would wiggle their ears and adjust their hearing. And while this man was going on with his speech, and mother let me just carry on like that, but I didn't bother anybody. I wasn't noisy. And you know what? Of father and mother's eight boys, five became ministers of the gospel. We weren't turned off because father and mother weren't so irritated with us that they were talking doubt and had this gloomy countenance. No, they knew that Jesus and joy ought to be equated. Now, so this fine lady, when she said, I wish they'd set up like little ladies and gentlemen, she might have said, isn't it wonderful how many of these young people are sitting up so beautifully? And I would have said, you know, I think it's wonderful. I find it very difficult myself to sit up. And then she might have taken the next step. As she saw them begin to get a little restless, say, shall we all stand and sing a song like everything's all right in my father's house? That way their excess energy could be taken care of a little. Then she made a second mistake. <laughs> she said, and boys and girls, next Sabbath morning when you come to Sabbath school, I wish you'd come on time. And I said to myself, that's strikeout number two. She didn't know a thing about equating Jesus and religious services with joy and faith and hope and love. These little children needed to have the stimulating effects of, of faith and confidence. And I thought to myself, you know, she could have handled that much more beautifully. She could have turned to me and said, Pastor Kuhn, I think it's wonderful how many of these young people have come to Sabbath school on time. I am just thrilled with how they, they are here a few moments before Sabbath school opens. And then she might have said, and pastor, for the benefit of some of these little people that couldn't quite make it on time, I think I know. Maybe daddy overslept this morning. And you know what probably would have happened? One of those little fellows had raised his hand and said, Mrs. Mrs. Blank, that's what happened. My daddy, my daddy didn't wake up early enough, and I was all ready to go, and mommy was all ready to go, and, 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 and daddy kept us from being here on time. And that teacher would have smiled and said, you know, I know just what you mean. And maybe then I would have come in the picture and I would have said, you know what, children? You know the next time that daddy oversleeps, you know what you could do? And you know, as I would explain to them what they might do, remember that I'm equating Jesus with joy. Psalm 1611 says, in his presence is fullness of joy. And we want our boys and girls to realize that religion is something beautiful, not drudgery. So I said, you know what I think? 
you might want to do, let me make a suggestion to you, to you young folk. The next time daddy oversleeps, I would suggest that you go and, and, and get a nice large glass and go to the refrigerator and get some little chunks of ice and put it in that glass and go to the spigot and put some water in that glass with the ice and then you'll go into where daddy is sleeping and just at the time they think that I'm going to suggest, you know, that they'll throw this ice water on daddy, I'll surprise them. I'll say, oh, no, 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 no. You won't throw this ice water on daddy. You'll say, daddy, wouldn't you like a glass of water to drink? <laughs> and then the little kiddies will laugh, you see. Now, what is this doing? This is associating religion with joy. Jesus and joy go together. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. If our people who are teaching our boys and girls in their homes and in the Sabbath school and in the church could realize that their boys are, and girls are associating one thing with another. They're associating Jesus with joy or just drudgery. If we can associate them with, with the joy of Jesus, Ah, they'll say like a little child said, uh, her mother, her mother called my wife one Sabbath morning and, and the mother was almost in tears. She said, I have a, an awful problem. She said, little Alice learned that we didn't plan to go to, to Sabbath school this morning and she began to cry. I don't know what to do because she so wanted to go to Sabbath school. You know what had happened? My wife and every leader of every division had made up their minds that they were going to equate Jesus with joy and make religion so joyful and so attractive that the children would love to be there. And this little child was crying because daddy and mommy weren't going to get her to Sabbath school. And uh, of course I was thrilled and my wife was thrilled. There is a way by which we can equate the religion of Jesus Christ with the joy that's found in Jesus Christ. So for the lady who put in this question, We've got yes. we we presented rather of a lengthy answer, but we did it so that not merely she, but our audience, all of our audience, can know that our children can love Sabbath school, they can love religion in every phase, right. and may the Lord bless them as they determine to have Jesus enjoy faith, hope, and love, and not and not forget choice and humility. You might have another question. Yes, there is a question here. Corporal punishment and spankings, how often and how much? <laughs> that is a good question indeed. Uh, the Bible says that the rod should be used. There are times for the rod to be used. However, the Bible also says a gentle reproof enters at the heart of a wise man more than a hundred stripes into a fool. This means that the thought of punishment does not involve a heavy punishing with a rod. It is the idea of punishment that means so much to a child. Uh, I know of, of mothers in, in our church family who have, when their child has disobeyed, maybe the mother said, will you pick up something and bring it to me? And the child didn't do it. The mother has gone and taken that little child by the hand and solemnly walked the little child over to this article that the child was to pick up. And that walking and that solemnity itself 
has been a punishment that has been very strongly impressed upon this child's mind. So the idea of all the all while whipping a child, this is out. There are very rare, extreme times when children must be punished with a whip, with a rod. It has been learned, however, by those who've done a research, that it's much better to use the whip or the rod than it is to use the hand. The hand is associated in the child's mind with a mother's anger, whereas the rod is associated in the child's mind with a rod, not mother. Mother wasn't mad. It was a necessity. So when we do punish our children corporally, we must be sure to make it very a very short punishment. It is the idea, it is the psychology, it is the disapproval of the parent. It is the fact that every time there's an offense, there must be punishment, rather than the extreme punishment that bring, that is cruelty, you see. How often? Every parent should say, Lord, give me wisdom. But help me when I punish my child, as we brought out in an earlier uh, service. Help me to let that child know that I love them, that I'm punishing them, not because I'm angry, not because they've made me mad, but because I want them to learn obedience. You might have another question. My husband lets my 10-year-old boy tune into all the television programs. When I object, he tells me right before my son, you're just a fanatic. What shall I do? First of all, it is well to remember that Jesus said a house divided against itself cannot stand. With a husband giving one set of directives, with a wife giving another set of directives, the house is torn apart. Now, the important thing to do is in each case to diagnose. By diagnose, we mean this. The Bible says in Galatians 6, 7, whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. It may not always be this husband's fault entirely that he is saying what he is saying. Perhaps the wife may have brought this circumstance on. For instance, this uh, wife who has a very keen, delicate conscience should love her husband to such an extent and be so tender and so humble and uh, so unpressuring that when it does come to a crisis like this, the husband will not find that he just delights to take issue with what his wife has said. We have counseled people for many years, a wife like this, to love your husband to such an extent, be so patient and be so meek in the ordinary affairs of life, that when it comes to a crisis, your husband will not want to take issue with you before the children. He will want to see and understand you. And it's possible to do it. But if the wife is, is taking issue with her husband all through the day, or when he's home, and picking on him. He will feel that as the manager of the home, at some point he must, he must stand his ground, and here is his opportunity to do it. So she must go way back and say, what, is, what may have caused this? Shouldn't I sit down with my husband and perhaps even apologize to him? James 5.16 says, confess your faults one to another. It's not, it's not wrong for a Christian wife to apologize to her husband. And that brings me to another experience. We were giving a series of radio messages some time ago in a certain city, 
and I was speaking on the subject of apology. How wives and husbands should apologize to each other and apologize to their children when they make a mistake. And a Christian wife wrote me this letter. In effect, she said, do you know, I never knew before that I should ever apologize to my husband. Since I was the religious person, I was supposed to be always right. <laughs> she said, and my husband doesn't even profess to be a Christian, and yet again and again he apologizes, uh, or he speaks a word of understanding. When I get upset and impatient, he'll say to the children, mother's had a hard day, and he'll make all kinds of allowances for me, and when he says something cross, he apologizes to me, and here I am, a Christian, and I've never apologized to him. So it is well for this Christian lady to start obeying the statement of James 5.16, and when she has made a mistake, to apologize to her husband. This puts his mind in, in the setting of wanting to cooperate with her in these crisis times. Maybe there's another question that's coming from our audience. Yes, this one's very good. I am very eager that my child will do right, and I want this child to give my unquestioning obedience to me, but I have noticed a little rebellion springing up. A very sincere question also, indeed. This has to do with the laws of choice and humility in connection with obedience. Now, as we understand the Word of God, the very first law of discipline is obedience. But within the area of obedience, a child should be taught how to have choice and to make little choices. And this is what many conscientious parents have overlooked. They've recognized full well the necessity of obedience, but they haven't recognized that for a, for a child to develop mentally and in character, this child should be taught how to make certain little choices, not merely be permitted to make certain choices, but actually encouraged to make little choices. So uh, my favorite author has stated that when we actually command a child to do something, this command should be in the form of a question, like, uh, would you like to do this for daddy? Would you like to do this for mommy? And still the child understands that obedience is expected. But by saying to the child, would you like to do this? It takes hold of the child's will. And the child has a, the innate feeling that it is choosing to obey daddy or mother. Every time we notice rebellion on the part of a child, we should ask ourselves this question. Am I, am I presenting a dogmatic image to this child? This child was formed in the image of God, and God wants all of us to develop characters to be like that of Jesus. In 1 John 3, 1 to 3, it says we shall be like him, but there can be no development of character without choice. And this begins from the, the earliest years of childhood. When I was a little boy, my dad taught me how to make some choices. He encouraged me to make some choices. There were little choices, that's for sure, but I was a little boy. So I'm supposed to make little choices. But within the air of obedience, these children should be taught how to make little choices. For instance, my dad let me have a little garden. I could choose what I wanted to plant in that, that garden. He also let me uh, raise a few chickens. I could choose whether I wanted white leghorns 
or whether I wanted Anconas or what I wanted. Also, he let me choose what kind of feed I should have for these chickens. Of course, I chose the same kind of feed that my father did, but it made me feel that I was a human being. I, I was an individual. And without my realizing at the time anything about it, my father was encouraging the development of character. He was showing me how to make little decisions so that when I was in my teen years, I would not be thrown out to make decisions for which I was totally incapable. You see, when parents throw around their children too much protectiveness, when the child gets at a certain age where they are determined to make decisions, they're entirely unqualified to make these decisions. Consequently, parents should pray with these children. They should study together how they can encourage the children to make small decisions in life within this giant area of obedience. Now that's a big subject all by itself, but perhaps this will help the parent to start with. And there might be, Jim, another question. This mother would like to have a promise. <coughs> she has a conflicting idea here. Let me just read it. Should a mother go to work to send her older child to a Christian school and leave her younger child with a sitter? <laughs> that is really a problem. We would suggest that the mother use a promise from the Bible, something, uh, something like this one in Isaiah 42, 16. I've memorized it for years, and I've presented it to the Lord again and again in my own experience. It goes like this, Isaiah 42, 16. I will bring the blind by a way that they knew not. I will lead them in paths that they've not known. I'll make darkness light before them and crooked things straight. These things will I do unto them and not forsake them. Uh, this contains five promises in one verse. And it, it, it deals with the things concerning which we find no answers for the moment. We do not understand the solutions at all. For us to say, no, no mother should ever work Every mother should always stay at home would, in the first place, be a very, very wrong attitude on our part because the Bible says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And for me to state, or for any human being to state, uh, that every mother should stay with her children and under no condition have any babysitter, I would be playing God. James 1.5 said, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God. And I found that too often we Christians and uh, many of us ministers play God unwittingly. In some cases, a mother will have a babysitter. In other cases, she'll sit with her own children. Now, in which event will she not go to work? In which event will she work? She'll go to the Lord. And she'll say, now, Lord, I don't know which, way to, which road to take. Uh, I have a, a child I want to have in a Christian school. I don't see any way by which this child can be in the Christian school unless I go to work. She may want to claim a promise like, like Matthew 6:33. It says, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, God will provide. I believe that an individual can arrive at the place in his or her relationship with the Lord where many individuals who would think they had to go to work would find it was unnecessary. Yet there are other individuals who have not formed this intimate relationship with the Lord. 
And for us to sit back and say, under no condition should you ever go to work, would be for us to force a growth that has not yet taken place. So this may sound a little ambiguous, this answer. It may sound as though we're beating around the bush, but we don't mean to. I think it's a very dangerous thing for any human being to lay down arbitrary rules for another to follow when we have a God who says, I'll instruct you. I'll teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with mine eye. I, uh, that's Psalm 32, 8. But this may help the mother. What should be my attitude when a teacher punishes my child unfairly? In the first place, <clears throat> as we've said often, the mother should try to diagnose the case. Why did this teacher punish my child unfairly? Galatians 6, 7, we often quote, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. There could be many reasons why this teacher punished this child unfairly. It may be that the teacher misunderstood. Maybe the teacher actually thought that the child was guilty of the thing of which the child was not guilty. I remember of a time that I punished my own daughter for a thing that she never committed, and I never knew it until she was full grown. And I said, Juanita, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I was so sure that you had done that. Now, the, the parent might go to the teacher and say something like what I've said. You see, obey the, the, the law of humility and say to the teacher, do you know, teacher, <clears throat> I think that my child wasn't guilty of what you think the child was. But if you did make the mistake, Mrs. Teacher, <laughs> I have made more mistakes. This immediately makes the teacher feel at ease as the parent approaches the subject, you see. I have made mistakes. I have accused my child when my child didn't make the mistake. And I've apologized to my little child and said, I'm sorry. And children are so forgiving, aren't they? Now, then the teacher immediately feels, eased, feels at ease in this parent's presence. And the parent has indicated to the teacher that the parent has made the same mistake. So the parent is looking down at this teacher. And the law of humility and the law of choice means people feel at ease when we don't belittle them and we don't try to choose for them. Now, so here the parent is praying, of course, that, that the parent will be kind and meek and lowly, you see, and unpressuring. They pray before they go to this teacher so that they won't be taking this holier-than-thou attitude, you see, and act all irritated. Uh, we, found, we find in this, uh, in this book, Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, it says, if someone is found to be at fault, go in the spirit of meekness. If the parent goes all hot and bothered, the battle can be lost before they ever talk to the teacher. But if they go with a meekness, an understanding humility, then the teacher's heart will, will be at ease, and they'll say, the teacher will say, and then the parent will explain why they think the child wasn't guilty of this. Maybe, maybe the parent made the mistake, maybe the child was guilty. So it would be well to be very humble and say, maybe my child did do this thing. I thought the child didn't, the child says it didn't. I'm not sure the child didn't, but maybe we can talk it over. And before they get through, by praying together and taking this humble attitude, the teacher may say, well, I'll double check. Remember, that teacher has a lot of urchins <laughs> to deal with. 
And that can, in all likelihood, lead the teacher to say, oh, I thought the child did this. And by uh, reconstructing the case, by reconstructing it, the teacher may say, oh, I did make a mistake. I'll call in little Jane and I'll say, Jane, I'm so sorry. Will you forgive me? I made a mistake. And then all will be well. You have another question, Jim. Uh, young people are involved also because this uh, boy, I think, wrote, my mother blows up at me all the time. How can I love her? This is a difficult thing. If we were talking to the mother instead of the child, <laughs> we'd say to the mother, look, when you blow up, you apologize to that child instantly. And, and that way the child will have its, its respect for you. But to a little child, you can say, honey, when you get to be as old as mommy, <laughs> you'll know that there, there are a lot of problems and many times our daddies and mothers get irritated and try to realize that mommy has an awful lot of problems that you don't have and pray for mommy and as you pray for mommy and you ask the Lord to help mommy not to get irritated at the same time you say Jesus and help me not to get irritated when mommy gets irritated because there are times when I get irritated too and I slap somebody so thank you, Lord, and shall we pray? Lord, we pray for the dear ones who put in these questions and for those that are concerned. And we thank you that you've promised them wisdom. We ask believingly, we claim triumphantly, in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.